Hi, I'm Beck Rayner and this is the Military Wife Life Podcast, a podcast that celebrates, empowers, supports and embraces the women behind the military men by building connections, acknowledging our strength, focusing on self-care and our mental health. Let's do this together. This episode of Military Wife Life is proudly brought to you by Defence Bank. Serving those who protect us, Defence Bank have the largest on-base branch network with 37 locations around Australia. They have Army, Air Force and Navy covered. To find your closest branch, visit defencebank.com.au. In part one of this episode, spouse Sarah talked about how her last-minute decision to join her husband in a regional location ended up resulting in a diagnosis for her son and uncovering his mysterious medical condition. Sarah walked us through the process of becoming recognised as a family with special needs, accessing support, and what happens when they post. We also talked about Sarah's determination to continue her teaching career in various locations across the country, despite the many curveballs her family have been thrown. This week on the podcast, part two of Sarah's story. He went to work Anzac Day and he heard his back. Previous year, he was deployed overseas on Anzac Day to an operation in the Middle East. And he, in Adelaide, he went to medical and they gave him some strong pain relief. And then he was off work for three weeks on these strong painkillers. And I don't know whether he should have been on them for as long as he was, but he went back to work three weeks after. And I think he had picked up the kids because I'd been at work. And he was out the back and the kids said, something's wrong with dad. And I said, Ah, okay. Um, All right. So I went out the back and Gary was hosing or gardening and he was just sort of bent over and he was shaking a bit. And I said, are you okay? And he said, something's not right. I've had a major anxiety attack. I've just tried to do what I can. Something's not right. And I said, okay, you need to go to medical. I said, you know, something's not right. You need to go. I've got enough to deal with, mate. Yeah, (laughs) we've done this. What's going on? It's been so great. You know, we've had such a fabulous time in Adelaide exploring. And then all of a sudden he just snapped and changed. I was like, oh, this isn't good. The weekend was really, because this happened on a Friday. The weekend was really bizarre. I remember we went to the beach and the dog ran, but Gary was between being silent and being Um, really angry, quite erratic, forgetful, super attentive. It was just mood swing central. And um, he went to um, medical on Monday morning. I was really surprised that he actually, you know, took my advice on board. And he was sent home with some, I think, calming tablets of some sort. And they said he had, they had him booked in for an appointment on Wednesday. And I didn't go with him to any of these because I don't usually go to medical appointments. So... Um, He just let me know what was going on. And they were actually doing, I think it's called a mental health assessment on the Wednesday. And he came home the Wednesday and had said, I'm being admitted. Uh, They're just trying to get a bed for me at, called here, it's called JLC, Jamie Larkhome Centre. Even then I'm like, okay, yep, no worries. I wasn't really, I don't know why I wasn't super worried because he was so internalised, I think. He had put on quite a good front. So I was like, okay, yep, no worries. And when they said, when he said I'm being admitted, I was like, mm-hmm. Again, he's been admitted within a day or two of needing surgery on his shoulder or his finger or anything. So again, I was like, okay, maybe they're keeping you in conservation. No worries. That's um, the same. Do you think it was PTSD or what did you think was happening? I don't know. Actually, looking back now, I, I thought there must have been some sort of mental health issue happening because... 
because the way he was, his moods were swinging so much and how he had been fine, like he'd been really great and that sort of shift when he came back from America and I sort of, I thought, oh, maybe he's got depression, but I hadn't really realised the extent of it. Joining the dots now, obviously, that's what's happened, but his parents had flown in the same weekend and I'd gone to work on the Thursday thinking everything was all right. And he had actually started drinking as soon as I left the house. And he managed to drink, I think, about a bottle and a half of bourbon. And then I was at work and I got these phone calls from some friends in Sydney and Perth. And they were saying, where's Gary? Are you with Gary? And I was like, no, he's at home. They're like, he's not at home. And they were telling me he doesn't sound right. He's you know, really um, upset. He's crying. It sounds really bad. You need to go and find him. And I was like, oh my God. So I left work and went home and I came home and I said, well, where's going? The mum and dad were like, oh, he went out. I was like, you let him leave the house. It was very like, don't let him drink. Don't let him leave the house. You know, something's not quite right. You need to keep an eye on him. I I didn't realise severity, but I was following the doctor's instructions. And I just drove around because of the estate we live in, there's lots of parks. I had no idea where he was. He wasn't answering his phone. I was ringing it to see if I could hear the phone. So I was driving really slowly with my windows down. And I was just sort of going back and forth thinking, you know, where could he be? They say he's in a park. And then I just I just managed to find him. I don't know how it happened, but I just managed to find him. And he was sort of tucked around the corner in this barbecue area. And he had a mug and his headphones. And it was, it was just horrible, horrible to see. So... Um, sorry. Very confronting when, you know, not long before this, he was Gary, your husband. And then all of a sudden he, there's this huge change in him. Yeah. And I think the fact that he'd gone so fast from being like, I'm getting the doctors and yep, this is, it's fine. We'll get this sorted to, I can't cope. I can't do this. But yeah, so I got him in the car and I took him home and he passed out. So I wasn't sure if he had taken tablets or not. So I'd rung my sister because my sister works for VPCS Open Arms in WA. She's a clinical physician over there. And she basically told me the process. And I said, should I call an ambulance? And she goes, no, he's logged in to go into the hospital tomorrow. Um, Just keep an eye on him, you know. And she got him on the phone. So he's had a couple of conversations with her as well. So I had no idea. So when I wasn't privy to any of the process of how it was happening, it was still left up to Gary of how to go to the doctor's appointments. Um, I think they gave me a card saying, you know, if you have any issues, call this the defence um, health line. But he was still meant to be the person responsible for getting himself to these places. And I was just like, he's not even meant to be driving on this medication. So how's that meant to work? It's In hindsight, it's just crazy that they still expect the member to be, I guess, lucid to be able to drive and get to these appointments. So to be able to manage um, themselves when they're in that state. Yeah, definitely. So next morning, he was a robot. He got up, he was numb. He didn't talk, left the house, sat in the car, just said, let's go. I was like, are you sure? And I couldn't, there was nothing. No, I can't type nothing. So I sort of was like, oh God, this is, this is really serious. I mean, I'm pretty good at, I guess, compartmentalizing things in that because of Jacob, because we've had to really build up a damn wall when things happen so quickly, because we've had to listen to all these doctors or we've had to think really quickly in regards to medical emergencies. So I think I sort of went into medical mum mode in that I was like, okay, let's just see what the doctor says. Let's get in there. Don't worry about what's happening on the inside. Let's just get this sorted. So we went to JLC and 
they were very welcoming and it was like he was catatonic. He just sat on this windowsill and he was just shaking. Like the shaking was just phenomenal. You know, you could imagine, you know, a Nutribullet going off. That's, he was just physically shaking and his hands were rubbing the whole time and he just wouldn't make eye contact. I mean, he had nurses crying. I didn't realise that. I was, I was sobbing in JLC. And I had to leave the room because she's like, come on, Gary, what's going on? He's like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. and he just wouldn't talk and he couldn't talk. He was stuttering. He couldn't even get a word out. So he's sort of just a fractured man. He was quite a shell when he went into JLC. And what was it that sparked this or that sent him into the spiral? I don't know whether it's because he was on the strong painkillers for three weeks and it's sort of it's kind of like an addiction and then he came off the strong painkillers and went straight back to work so there was no you know wind down off the medication I can think that so that might have been playing on his mind anyway so it sort of amped up his emotions but I think it's really got to do with dates like it's um we don't realize with his triggers some months some days are really bad and we don't work we can't work out why it's bad until we actually look at the date and go, oh, that's why. So Anzac Day is always going to be a trigger because that's when he left to go on the deployment in the first place. And the same day that he heard his back, it could be, I don't know, it's just we don't realise what the until the date comes around. And we have to be, we're aware now because it's only been going on for about a year. So it's still very, very new to us is how triggers are happening. And we, we, he still has a very intense rehab process. So And so yeah. did something he, happen on that deployment that made him come back a different person or what was it yeah, during that yeah. deployment? I'm not sure. So Gary was on the recovery crew. Um, so he was the first response. So he was trained to go into, I guess, what they call the war zone. And if a plane had gone down and rescue it, fix it and take it back to the base, um, repair it and then get it on its way again. And I know when he was over there, he was out of contact probably four times for about two weeks at a time, easily. Which means that I something knew. happened four times. Yeah, which means that he had to go somewhere and he couldn't contact me. And he just sent me a message going, I'm not going to be in contact. I'll let you know when I get back. And I was like, yeah. okay. So, and I would still send messages because they would just sit in his message bank and then he would get them when he'd have access to internet again or whatever it might be. So yeah, I still pretended he was listening and I'd send him messages and then he'd come back and I can't be sure what happened, but um, he talks about it a lot with his psych um, and his doctors and they know what's happening and we I can work out what triggers are so you know he'll always drive he can't ever be a passenger anymore so he can't sit in as a passenger in the car because that's a trigger for him he can't have loud noises so if I'm in the kitchen I'll have to say loud noise if I'm about to use the blender or or something like that because that will set him off or the kids have to close cupboards quietly which you know is never going to happen because the bangs sudden bangs can scare him um traffic driving in traffic can set him off so it's obviously got something to do with the vehicle and it was that one deployment that he came back and was he straight away different when he came back from that deployment or was it a gradual thing? What Like was he putting on a front when he initially got back and then it's sort of things started to creep in? So I think um, how it's come about is that when he was over there, we were actually told that we were being posted, that he, we had received, um, he was going to Adelaide and um, we were still living in our fixer-upper house and we had done a lot of work to it and we knew we probably had to do a little bit more before we could rent it out. So when he came back, he, I think 
he knew something was right wasn't right um, because he put in for long service leave and he basically worked on the house and he didn't stop you know he built fences painted walls ripped up ground up we have it's five acres and it's old Queenslander yeah and we did so much work to it so and he made he sure did. he was away from work and didn't have a moment to think about anything else but fixing the yeah, house basically yeah he worked non-stop and he kept himself busy you know and, that, and he wore himself out and he was so tired and I remember we I actually had booked myself a cruise so we had booked it the year before myself and some girlfriends and we booked it because of the deployment and we'd said we're going away and at the same time that week that I was on the cruise was also our uplift and our pre-pack and our uplift yeah and I said to Gary I can it's okay I can change he goes no no it'll be fine you go it'll be fine I was like okay no worries so I did I went it was fabulous and heck I yes <laughs> yeah and I'm out of here I know I don't have to do uplift Woo-hoo. And I came back. My friend had said, he's exhausted. He's in bed. And I just walked into, um, we were staying with a friend and there was stuff everywhere. And I was just like, "Hmm, this is really odd. This isn't usually how we move. You know, this isn't our usual order. And he was so exhausted. And it was a different kind of exhaustion to what I knew for him to be physically tired, you know, from doing all the work or because he had pre-packed or whatever. It was just a different kind of exhaustion. I hadn't I didn't know he was having nightmares or he wasn't sleeping properly either. So I think there were some early symptoms and then we got in the car and we drove to Adelaide and then he went to America for three months and then he came back and it was fine and then he heard his back and then it just all imploded. There was nothing here for him to do. There was nothing to keep him busy. Work I guess he had just changed, had to rest with the back. Children. Yeah. And so what was the actual process of, obviously he went into hospital, what the process from there, what, what happened? So when he went into hospital, he had to be in there for a month under initial observation. So the kids and I couldn't see him. We didn't have contact with him um, because they had to, what they call, find a balance or stabilise him because he was very severe. They hadn't had, they said they hadn't had a case like that in a long time. And I was like, really? So, you know, the severity of it, it's still shocking. It still astonishes me. And the fact that they had to prove that he had PTSD and that he wasn't faking his symptoms and he wasn't faking being mute he wasn't faking the shaking he wasn't because they have people that go in and do that and I was just like I wouldn't wish that on anybody you know getting up at 2am because you wake up because your mind's playing tricks on you or losing parts of your memory or not being able to go outside and having to see every exit you know Gary and I we don't go out anymore in that we don't go to shopping centers I have to do all the shopping going out for dinner going out for a coffee that has to be in open in open spaces so that's just how life has progressed. Well, the initial diagnosis, I wasn't really privy to that. So he, when he went into Joint Health Command, they were meant to communicate with the squadron that Gary had been sent to um, JLC or he'd been admitted there. But he was still meant to have completed a form to say that he was being admitted. And I still don't get that. I don't, I, you know, he wasn't lucid. He's on all this medication. He wasn't even talking, but he still had to get hold of a computer to submit this form to say that he was being admitted. And I was like, this seems like madness. I wasn't really contacted in any of it. In the end, I had to be the go-between because there was a communication fail between Joint Health Command and the squadron. So people at the squadron were calling him on his mobile saying, you know, why aren't you here? You're meant to be on the shift and 
that was setting him back. So they had to start again because he'd go mute again and he just wouldn't talk. So, and then he'd freak out that he was going to get fired, not fired, but you know, that he was going to be charged as AWOL because everything is thrown completely out of proportion. So I ended up calling the number that I was given when he went to America and saying, this has to stop. You know, he's in hospital. You can't call him. And even then there was still the taboo of the mental health factor. So they still hadn't um, let them know that it had, it was to do with the fact that he was probably maybe having a nervous breakdown or that it could be PTSD or that he was having a mental health stay or whatever the terminology they used. So yeah, no one knew what was going on with Gary at all. So <laughs> that was a bit of a nightmare in the first month. And, and then... And so once you dropped him off at hospital, what were you feeling like driving back from the hospital? Had you just sort of just gone into, like you said, mum medical mode for that whole time and then obviously he's in hospital and you're driving away without him? What were you feeling? That was hard. So I think I had a cry in the car and then Gary's parents were still here. So they were with the kids. And I, I told the kids, Gary, dad was deployed because um, we were used to him being away on shift work. So we treated it like a deployment. But that day I had Gary's mum and dad there, which was great because it was a distraction. Um, but I went to Costco and I like to fill the trolley with pumpkin pie and giant bag of M&Ms and I ordered <laughs> hot pizza for the kids and I just loaded it up with carb and sugar and stuff that I could just basically hole up at home with. So that's, that was my go-to. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, I did. I called my mum and because Gary had said things to friends as well, I, I was keeping everyone in the loop and that helped too. So just talking about it and I guess not holding on to the fact of what was happening because I, I still didn't know what was happening. I didn't know what was going on with him. So Were you still said, maybe in a little bit of denial about what was potentially ahead of you? Yeah. Oh, yeah, because I, we had no idea. I didn't know what it was. I hadn't really even contemplated it being PTSD. Yeah, I had no idea. I was like, this is it. I thought, you know, if he's in hospital, I, he's not going to be at work for how long? And he's never, that's never been an issue because the defence, the squadron's always called me, always spoken about it. I didn't hear from them. So I didn't know if we weren't going to have a house. I didn't know if he was going to maintain his job. I didn't, I didn't know what was going to happen. So that was, I was already making plans. I was like, okay, it's all right, we can do this. So it's, I can probably pack up and we could probably move back to Queensland and, you know, it, or we could just get a rental. It'll be fine. Something will be, we'll work it out. You know, just doing all the worst case scenarios, planning yeah. for any possible event. So at that stage, he was just down to go into hospital for a month and then it was what was going to happen then. A plan of action would be formed while he was in hospital or they were going to stabilise him and then discharge him. What was the plan? The kids and I couldn't see Gary and they actually didn't want him having his phone or any contact with anybody for about two weeks to four weeks. So I called the hospital just to check how he was going. Because of the way he had gone in, I was concerned that he might try and go walk about. And they said, no, you know, he's okay, he's stable, We've had, or he's had a bad day, or he's been in his room all day. He, wasn't, he actually stopped eating as well. So they had to keep a real eye on him. So when he could see us again, I spoke with his doctor, and they said, well, you know, the same conversation as I've heard with you in that you know, how did this come about? How was he beforehand? What do you think going on? Tell me about the history. And I was, again, medical mode going, okay, this is, you know, I've got my journal because every time we get a diagnosis, I usually research, I usually write down everything that's happened 
all the indicators just because you know your memory can be so flexible in what you try to recall and it can be so important to remember those things so he ended up being in hospital for three months and we would go in because we're in Adelaide I mean it's terrible as all of this has happened again blessing silver lining that we are in Adelaide because it means that JLC is only 20 minutes where we live. So we could go straight after school once we could see Gary so that we could spend the afternoon with him. Um, you know, we take afternoon tea. I would see if he wanted to have dinner with us, try to get him eating again and also stay in contact with reality and what was at home, you know, because he had just gone so blank and um, become so tunnel visioned I don't even know what he was thinking you know just to keep him in check and make him remember he does have a family you know he does have something to go back to and I think that really helped too well the doctors think it helps too so they said yep come in whenever you can that'd be great yeah so we went in as much as possible and after three months he was able to come home but he'd only come home for maybe a night or two on the weekend and then he'd go back in during the week and then he was able to come out for like a month and then he'd go back in for two weeks so so we've only just gone past the anniversary and he's been in hospital for about nine months out of this year so it's been pretty intense Hey Military Wife Life community, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you a little bit about the Defence Bank Foundation and the great work they're doing in the defence community. The foundation raises funds to support serving and ex-serving ADF members living with injuries or illnesses such as post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2019, the sole beneficiary of the foundation was the Defence Community Dogs Program, a specialised dog training program which rescues abandoned dogs and trains them through correctional services. 40 service dogs have been trained and given to veterans since the Defence Bank Foundation was established. The program gives dogs, inmates and veterans a second chance at life. Him being in JLC, though, is completely different to with Health Command in that I've been very privy to conversations. The doctors have called me and I've called them. I've got contact details. I guess there's no, there's just full disclosure on everything, which is great. Yeah, there's no barrier like, you know, with him initially dealing with all of it himself and having to, you having to rely on him passing it on to you. That was very beneficial. Yeah, we'd go out, um, visit him because I was able to not work as well. So again, being in Adelaide, I didn't have to financially, I didn't have to work. So with NDIS um, supporting Jacob and with therapy and that. So I was able to go in during the day without the kids and we'd have, you know, appointments then and we'd just talk and just hang out and just, you know, get him back in touch with reality, I guess. So that was the process. And we just took it really easy uh, even though we were away from everybody, all our support network. And I know a lot of people said, are you going to come back? coming back to Queensland I said we can't like we can't Gary's in hospital we can't change that you know he's not doing well he has he's got no memory because of all the stress he wasn't able to remember a lot of stuff we need to stay here we can't move I mean it was terrible that I didn't have friends or family on site with me but it was great in some ways because it meant that we could just focus inwards and we could just really deal with the fallout of this implosion and just become a I mean we are a tight family unit but I didn't have to worry about people dropping in or trying to get work done or um, managing you know reactions of other people we just had to do with ourselves so did you go through a sort of grieving process 
in regards to he was one person not too long ago and now he's a different person and you don't actually know when this all sort of gets sorted out and you're in a place where he's in a good place again, whether he'll return to being the person he was. Yes. So it's, he's, he's still, he's still gay. Like he's come a long ways. I think a lot of the anxiety that comes around and I've been, you know, following conversations of other I guess, veterans with PTSD. And I talk with a lot of the people at JLC. It's a be- it's a really great unit. So when they go in, I'll go in and have a chat with them all and just, you know, we've made some friends that way, that they don't know what's going to happen. So uh, the process is so blind in that they're just going, okay, well, next this is the next medication you're going to take and we're going to see what the, what the results are from this. Well, that's not working. Okay, well, you need to come in from two weeks to change that. Now let's try this medication. So when Gary received the diagnosis of um, PTSD and a couple of others, you know, it was a relief, I think, because he felt that he wasn't crazy, I guess, in a sense, you know, it wasn't all in, it was all in his head, but there was a reason for it. So a change, I guess, of, I said, a grieving process for what had happened and how he had changed and how we have to adjust our lives for sure. But we've adapted in some, in so many ways. And then the next issue for many of them in that they can't get better is that they don't know what's going to happen with their career. So Gary's almost 15 years in the Defence Force, which it's a long time to commit anywhere. Um, And he didn't know what was going to happen because a chaplain reached out to me and then I was able to work out the process. Because again, we still, we're not going to have a wage and I have to go work full time and do we have a house over our heads? What's going to happen? So when I reached out to the chaplain, they had said, nope, it's completely fine. Like it, when I spoke with the doctor, they said, you're lucky you're not in the army because you would be out within a month and you would be discharged. But because Gary's specially trained, they really wanted to do everything they could to get him back into the unit. So that was great. Um, good to hear. And um, just gave me a bit of breathing space, I think. And then um, we had all these neck reviews. So because it's a process, you go from being sick to being on sick leave to being unable to work. So you had all these acronyms that we had to go through. And then um, come January, we got a call in that um, we were having a meeting and there were all these titles. And I said to Gary, this seems like a pretty big meeting. And he goes, I think I'm going to be medically discharged. And we laughed thinking, we're like, oh, maybe you'll be promoted to sergeant. Who knows? But yeah, it was pretty sad that we knew we were predicting this. And it was hard because every time we go into base, it's just a wave that comes over. And I had to go in as emotional support for Gary. So yeah, we found out that he was being medically discharged and kind of held it together. And then I cried because it's the end of a life, for an end of an era for us. So and then I don't know if that helped or made it worse for Gary because then he was really like, what happens now? And then you have to go through the whole DVA process and all that kind of stuff. And I was still saying, it's fine. Don't worry. It'll work out. We just need to get through this next day. It'll be fine. So, But it's, I mean, yeah. it's not just him leaving the Air Force. It's you no longer being a defence spouse. I mean, in your heart, you'll always be a defence spouse, but just leaving, I guess, that life behind for something new at a time that you didn't realise it was going to happen. Like it's not like you yeah. a year ago you thought, okay, we're getting out of defence in a year's time. Like you obviously had probably longer term plans for him to stay in until he retires. Yeah, and that's that's exactly right. We had He was going to be a lifer and um, we had thought we'd be in Adelaide for eight years because it was a new plane and a new squadron and he had been trained up for it so that it's only been 
you know, two years and we're going back. So that's a completely different life change. But yeah, definitely. And being, I've always been around Air Force and then coming to Adelaide, I've learned a bit more about Navy and Army. So um, it's going to be hard going, going back and I'm not being a civilian, but I guess not being privy to certain factors in the defence life. We'll, we'll still have defence friends, but you just, some things you just become accustomed to, you know, when we move, oh, that's going to be paid for us. Or if we, if Gary goes away, you know, we know there's going to be a disturbance allowance or just little things that not that I take for granted or I've ever minded or, but yeah, it's just maybe another adjustment really. And the fact that also Gary, if he's medically discharged, he's going to be home a lot. So we really have had to learn to basically live together again because he was always away or he was on shift work and we just had a system in place. But because he might only be able to, we're not exactly sure, but sometimes they can only work 10 hours a week or he can work part-time. or So that's going to be a really big adjustment. I know in the last, I guess, three months that he's been home and he's home all the time, like he's here from every single hour of the day, he is at home, So, um, which has been eye-opening. I guess yeah. as a, a husband and wife and that, yeah, it changed. I'm like, well, if I'm working, you can now do dinner or, and if he's at home, he's okay. He's quite a homebody, but I still have to do all the shopping and I still have to run the kids around because that stresses them out. So if he's having a bad day, he'll just, you know, be on the lounge or in bed or watching a movie or pottering around the garden. I can't expect him to even leave the house. So <laughs> in saying that he's at home all day, that still changes every day. Just be a shadow in the background he might not be able to be around the kids and he knows that and we've had to be really open with the kids and that in our three saying that you know it's not you dad's just going to have to go and have a break for a while or no we can't have that particular tv show on or we need to change up how we're using the kitchen space today or you know something like that so yeah we've all just had to get used to each other again so when he came out of hospital obviously he does just doesn't come out and he's fixed what were you feeling with him coming out of hospital really happy I was really happy when he came out of hospital I was probably apprehensive in that I had read a lot of stories and that they can be quite violent but Gary's never been violent ever you know that he doesn't have the anger or the lashing out or the night terrors or anything like that so he'll get very frustrated and angry with himself and he'll get short but that was what I was worried about because I'd read a lot about personality changes but no he's it's been good to have him home and be able to take care of him and see how he's moving forward, I guess. How is he being managed at the moment? Is it medication and psych visits? What's the process now? So he still has quite a intense um, rehabilitation process. He actually said no to going back to hospital in the last couple of months because he doesn't want to do that anymore. He wants to be able to manage things at home, which I was really grateful for because I thought it might have been an escape for him as well that he could just go to hospital and not have to worry about it and talk to people but he was like no I need to manage this at home it's not fair on my wife it's not fair on my kids so he goes to open arms at least once a fortnight and he has them he can always access them on the phone as well he sees his psychologist at least once a fortnight and then he has specialist appointments so they had to do he's had to have knee surgery twice in the last year as well so he goes and gets that checked he they thought he had a brain tumor 
um, when it all first began. So, and they actually found that he had nodes on his thyroid. So they thought he had thyroid cancer. So they have to keep an eye on that too. So he goes and sees a specialist in regards to that. Just another medical file for you to start. Yes. And I just take it. I'll go, okay, that's just another thing. We don't need to worry about that right now. How do you put the different things in different boxes like that? Like, how do you shut it off like that and just say, okay, it's just another thing to worry about and still go uh, on with living and going to work and looking after the kids and all of that. I have a couple of friends that go, it's not fine, Sarah. You can't, it's not fine. I'm like, it is, it'll be fine. But I do have to stop and check myself. And I have friends that make me very accountable and they go, you know, this is, this is really harsh. Like you shouldn't have to do this. It's okay to cry. And they kind of force me to own up to the situation, which I'm very appreciative for them. I don't know. I, I think because even though we've had the drama of Jacob and all of this other aspect of Gary happening other things have come out of it you know we've still been able to move forward and we've still been able to benefit in some way it sounds terrible but you have to find the silver linings so you have to be able to think of what you can make out of the situation so for Gary I think he's home you know we get to see him more often it's terrible how it came about but he does get to see his kids grow up and he's realizing now how much he has missed out um, having been away so often and being on shift work how much I've had to take on and he doesn't really want that for me and, and for the children anymore so he wants to be more entwined in their lives and then I just look at how far they've come so Jacob's graduating year 12 in Adelaide and we never thought that would happen when we were given that intellectual impairment diagnosis and that he was going to die they never thought he'd finish year seven or you know they're like don't be silly you know he's not going to be able to do that or he's never going to be able to go to uni or whatever and he's got three vet certificates under his belt because we've persevered and we've made sure that he's set up and the same for Gary we'll do the same we'll make sure that we can live the best life we possibly can with what we have and just keep moving forward I guess and so you've been the rock for your family for so long does the weight ever get a little bit much on your shoulders uh yes and I think it's okay to say that it gets a lot I think a lot of people don't say that and then it can get too much I've been very strong in this conversation I must admit that back I usually would have had a cry at some stage because I do find it hard to talk about but no I see open arms they also allow the spouses anybody can access it your partner doesn't have to be going through anything very difficult if you're finding it hard you, it's an open line so you can call them so I've been speaking with them once a fortnight which is really beneficial I have amazing network around the country of friends who like I said have forced me to accept the harshness of the situation and then also I try and make sure I speak with three people a day just ask about their day I like to get lost in other people's stories I get out and work because I put a different hat on and I get to see my students and the lives that they come from and focus on them I have a cry which is very cathartic and so what type of things do you do for a little bit of respite aside from managing every medical condition in your household i do enjoy i guess talking with friends i enjoy exercise and just getting out and having some time by myself so i've really had to make sure that i make time for myself and amongst everybody else as well and that when i don't feel healthy then everything kind of starts to decay around me because my patience is getting low and i really need to be if anything i need to have a lot of patience at the moment so i really try and um, carve out some time so at the moment i've been going to pilates when i can i've joined an online wellness group so i do a lot of writing 
thinking, try and get it out of my mind so I don't hold on to so many ideas and so many thoughts and just try and have a clear mind ready for what's going on. I love getting my hair done and booking myself in for a massage and I always get my manicure and a pedicure because, you know, when you look good, you feel good. But you've obviously recognised that those foundations help you feel okay with tackling everyday life and when those slip it sort of starts to crumble yeah definitely today for example i baked all day i just did all different um, meals because my oldest allergies and i just cooked lots of snack food because i needed to have things on hand because i'm going back to uni going back to work next week appointments are going to start picking up but i needed to know that i had some sort of organization in regards to food because that will just streamline the week just taking time and planning just having a routine so that i'm aware of what's coming up and that I can plan for it really makes a big difference. And consistency is important. What now, what's happening with Gary's discharge and what are the next steps with all of that? So we're currently in the process of seeing what life will be like after the discharge. When we were given the discharge, we had to check dates. So again, you know, trying to put family first and making sure that everyone, I guess, has been catered for. So because Jacob's graduating from year 12, they had wanted us to discharge in November, which I thought would be fine. But then we found out Jacob's graduation isn't until early December. And because of that two-week window, we also would then either have to pay the rent to stay in the house or we wouldn't be entitled to a move back to Queensland. So then we had to apply under exceptional circumstances to have the discharge extended past that graduation date. And also because Gary has to attend a PTSD course and he's able to do that. Now he's stabilised. So that's coming up and that goes for eight weeks. So once he has gone through the course and Jacob's graduated and we can basically tie up loose ends. We're going to head back to Queensland and Gary has had to do with the DVA process. So we have a military support coordinator on base who I confer with in regards to dates and what has to happen. So there was a transition seminar that um, we could attend. And when that was on, we also booked a one-on-one with military super because there's a process in regards to being medically discharged and how the pension works in regards to your diagnosis, how many life points you get. There's a whole algorithm to what you can be entitled to when you leave the defence. Yeah, so that's what we are basically waiting for just to see what that looks like and what Gary's income might be in regards to pension or compensation or super. I don't know all the exact terminology, but it sounds like there's three or four different people we have to go through and Gary has to submit with a DVA rep. He has to talk with them and submit any injuries or medical reports and then they assign a point to it and then that adds up to the life quality and then something happens magically there in regards to money i'm not sure and so how do you envision things panning out back in queensland what are you hoping life will look like back in queensland i'm hoping it will look a lot easier that's probably a dangerous word to say happier happier is probably a nicer one in that i'll hopefully still be studying my master's and that jacob will have finished school so he could possibly be work experience or accessing some sort of ndis school leavers program that gary i don't know in regards to gary because it really depends on what the outcome from the determination is in that if he can work at all if he can work 10 hours he really would like to work with other 
PTSD veterans and keep up contacts and just, you know, I think there's a program coming out where they can all have a chat and they can support one another. So that would be interesting how that pans out. Yeah, my other children will go back with their friends. We'll have our great support network at back. I'll be back amongst my village and... I've just signed up in amongst everything to do a graduate certificate in disability studies so I can become an advocate for families like I was trying to navigate the NDIS system and just help them realise, you know, the potential that they have in themselves in advocating and championing for their child and that there's no harm in asking. There's a service that's out there. It's just about using the right angle to be able to access it and do what you can for your child. And that's essentially what I'd love to do. I'm going back to a school. I know, but it'll still give me a leg up into any job I might want to apply for because, again, it's knowing, I guess, my worth and knowing that I can do it and not just taking what's coming because of the defence life has sort of thrown at us and just being able to do what I would like to do. And it's quite funny because our roles are reversed. So I'm going back to a workplace that I know. I've got my paperwork in line. I know what I'm going to get paid and I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be great. I know that I'm going to have growth and possible promotion there and um, challenges that I'm really going to enjoy. Whereas my husband is in the position that I've been in for the last 15 years and that he has no idea. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He has to apply for all this paperwork. He doesn't know what kind of pay he's going to get if he's going to get any. He doesn't know if he's going to have a workplace or who's going to be there and he's going to have to make some new decisions and really take it on the chin sometimes because it's just a it's a complete flip around a role reversal on how we would usually approach employment so you're feeling fairly secure about moving and he's not yeah basically yeah (laughs) so it's yeah it's eye-opening for him that's for sure so I think he has not realized how much that we emotionally take on in the labor that we do for the family and the change that we take on every time we post I say we in a global royal we sense but you know spouses you know we change every time some families are really lucky in that they can stay or they can transfer within divisions they've known those people before but majority of the time you're just walking in blind you don't know what's available unless you've done a lot of research beforehand you don't know the area you know as a teacher every area I'm in is different it's a different socioeconomic area different resources in the classroom different access to professional developments it's, it's going to be quite interesting for him to go back I feel for him I really do and I keep saying that I said it'd be fine he goes how do you know that I said because I've done it I've had to think it's fine for the last 15 years so it'll be fine something will come up it always does we'll just yeah. it'll make it work well I mean I can't believe that we both got through that without crying <laughs> first off <laughs> I was very close yeah, I, I did have close. tears in my eyes at a few points but I held it together for you thanks Becca I appreciate um (laughs) but I mean I take my hat off to you because the way you seem to be able to deal with everything and just take it as it comes and just deal with it and see the silver (laughs) linings is just a lot of people would be I'm out I can't deal with Mm -hmm. one more thing on my shoulders we have had to have that conversation Gary and I we actually probably have to check in with each other about every three months because of the reality when it happened he had said it's fine if you have to go with the kids I understand you know this isn't I said no like we've been through so much with Jacob and moving and all of the epic adventures we've had no way like this is fine and then another three months something 
something else will happen. And, you know, I'll have a bad day. I was really, really sick one day and I just had a really, really bad day. And he got upset and I said, I am going to have a bad day too. You know, this is, I'm entitled to have my emotions and it's not always about you. And because I'm very big on open communication and I'll just say it. Basically, there's no point hiding it or holding on to it. And we have to have the conversation. You know, if this is too hard, it might get easier, but it's still a hard road in front of us. We still have a lot of things. I said, from your point of view, I've already been down this hard road. Every posting, you know, every time you go away, I've been on that road. So this is a new road for you, but I've already traveled it. So I'm still here for the long leg. So we do have to have that, I don't say divorce, but that breakaway discussion, I guess. We try and check in or I try and bring it up every three months just to see how we're going. Just the way that you're coping with everything and just doing what you've got to do for your family and yeah, being there for everyone while also looking after yourself, which, you know, usually is so the first important. thing that sort of gets chucked out the window, even though that's the yeah. important thing to, to hold on to. I just, yeah, yeah you're so inspiring. Thanks. Yeah. You just, I do hear that a lot. It's just, I think it's really important just to be there for other people as well, knowing that others are happy and moving forward and that you can be a part of that and help them and that you can look after yourself because if you fall apart, everything falls apart, which is probably quite egocentric, but we're integral parts of the defense life and, you know, we keep all the wheels spinning. So... Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with all of us. Thank you so much for inviting me back. It was great to have a chat. I so hope you were able to relate or take something away from today's episode. There are definite ups and downs to military life, but let's get the conversation happening so we can see that we are all in this together. We are all just doing our best. So until next week, you got this. Let's do this together one day at a time. Thank you so much for tuning in. If this episode has touched you, helped you, or given you that extra confidence to keep going, to continue to hold down the home front, to continue to do all the things, I would so appreciate it if you could pop into Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the podcast and leave a review, a comment about what you would like to hear more of, or just some encouraging words. If you want to suggest a guest, I am always looking for new people to talk to. You can do that by jumping over to the website www.militarywifelife.com.au and clicking on our podcast page. I would love to hear from you. 